Oh, Father, with great joy, we bow before you and recognize that our greatest treasure beyond comprehension is to know Christ, to be forgiven by his sacrifice on the cross, and to enjoy his eternal life. Father, we pray as we gather to worship you today that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, from our heart to yours, that we would worship you as the living God and worship you from living hearts. And may gratitude, Lord, fill every pore of our being, every note of our singing, and Lord, our obedience as well. To you, Lord Jesus Christ, we give honor and glory and praise. And we ask all these things in your wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. All you need is love. Da-da-da-da-da-da. All you need is love. I wish I could sing, although that's not the greatest song in the world to sing. Made famous by the Beatles back in, released in July of 1967, the very year I came to faith in Jesus Christ. So I was spending a lot of time listening to the Beatles prior to my conversion, and then after that, I didn't listen to them so much anymore. But I have to say that that song is true. All you need is love. If you define love the right way. Is it not the Bible that tells us love is more important than hope and even faith? Does not the Bible tell us that all the commandments can be assumed and summarized in this simple duo, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, when defined properly, all you need is love. However, you and I have a tendency to distort whatever God gives to us and to defile the pure. I was doing some study this week, and often as I do, I'm reading a book and dictating into my phone so that at a later point, I can move the dictation, which is turned into words, onto paper to do further study. So I'm doing my dictation, and what I meant to say was that love was vitally important. That's what I said, but my phone put down, love is vaguely important. Has that ever happened to you? Spell correct, drive you crazy, make you say what you didn't want to say. I said one thing, it hurt another. And that's what happens in this world of ours. We hear God says one thing and we hear the exact opposite. Yeah, all we need is love, which means I can define its limits, I can interpret its meaning, and I can aim it all at me. <laughs> and that's when real biblical love evaporates. We now come to the last chapter in our study in the book of Hebrews. It's still going to take us a few weeks, but it is an interesting chapter. 
Because up to this point, the argument has been made that Christ, obviously, is superior to everything else, superior to Moses and his law, superior to the angels. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, superior to the old priesthood. The new covenant, which he has brought in, is better than the old covenant, and the argument has gone back and forth and back and forth because there's a group of believers from Jewish heritage who are now thinking of rejecting Christ and going back to Judaism. And so this letter called an exhortation in chapter 13, verse 22, this exhortation is an argument. And the argument is, there's no comparison. Christ is better than anything else. If you reject Christ, you've rejected your only hope for eternal life. So now we come to the last chapter, and it's a very interesting chapter. One scholar tells us that there are 20 imperatives dealing with 15 separate topics in this particular chapter. But I do think there is something of a cluster, a theme, as he begins in chapter 13 and verse 1 with these words, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. In fact, the theme early on is this subject of love as it is expressed in different ways. Brotherly love. It is, the Greek word behind this is, and you know it well, Philadelphia. That's exactly what the word is, Philadelphia, which means uh, the city of brotherly love or uh, the love from one to another that is aimed at blood relatives. Of course, Philadelphia is the city Brotherly love was elevated in the Hellenistic culture, emphasizing blood relatives, but the Bible, when it uses brotherly love, is emphasizing faith relatives, the family of faith. And we are to love the brethren. Notice it's a command, let this love continue, as though it were being threatened as though it, it were stifled somehow. It's something we agree to, but it's not always something that we uh, heartily express. And when you read the book, you find out that the great persecution that they were undergoing probably throttled back their love for one another. Because when people are being persecuted for their faith, others are not as quick to identify with them. We read in chapter 10 that we need to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. So apparently because of persecution and this thought of maybe returning to Judaism, people had stopped gathering together and practicing the basics of brotherly love. By the way, if you're being persecuted for your faith, sometimes the greatest persecutors are your family and your old friends. 
and your former boss and your close neighbors, they hate you because you have taken a new love that they don't understand. And if you are driven from friends and family, what you need is a spiritual family to take you in. So now's not the time to stop loving the brethren. Let the love of the brethren continue. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, give preference to one another. So if you want a definition of love, you could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the portion of scripture that Pastor Doug read a moment ago, which by the way, is there in the scripture because the church at Corinth wasn't loving. It was a rebuke. I find that a bit ironic that at every wedding, not every wedding, many weddings, people will read 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read a rebuke to you this morning before the wedding goes on, and it's the fact that you're not loving because this is what love is and this is not what you're doing. Here's a good definition of love though in Romans 12, 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. What does that mean? In honor, give preference to one another. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, esteem others as more important than you are. That's a great definition of love. Because agape love sacrifices itself for the benefit of those around. But there's something else that happens at times in churches when brotherly love begins to wane. And that is that we begin to judge one another as not being as spiritual as we are. Oh, there was a situation in the early church of some, again, who were thinking of leaving Christ, but others who were holding to the faith. And sometimes when you are the one holding to the faith, you, you get that martyr's complex. You're sacrificing everything and no one else is. And you have a tendency to look down upon those who are near you. A persecution complex. Also, uh, there is the idea. This is bothering me, if you can tell. <laughs> Let me know if, you, if I need to fix it. William Barclay puts it this way. There was the danger in the early church of heresy hunting. Now, there was heresy in the early church, so you needed to identify it and define it and try to eliminate it. But some people got excited with this game and the danger of heresy hunting would turn people into censorious, critical, fault-finding, condemning, harsh individuals who were very unsympathetic people. And instead of loving people, they would criticize people. It's a great thing, Barclay says, to keep the faith clean but when the desire to do so makes us destroy brotherly love, we are left with a situation just as bad, if not worse, than the one we tried to avoid. Let love 
among the brethren. Flourish and continue. What kind of brothers are we to love? The good ones. The ones who love us. You love me, I'll love you. I mean, that's the way we practice it. It's the unloving and the difficult that we have a rough time loving. The weak who fall and the broken who mess up. And we began to think we're beyond these things. So we're not so loving to that group of people. Let me encourage you that what he is saying at the end of this book is that there's a whole lot of brokenness in this church and there's a whole lot of people having a hard time. We need to encourage and step up. Love for one another or else there's going to be a lot more breakage. There's going to be more defending or deleting um, walking away from the faith, rejecting what Christ has done for them. Back in 1997, I had the privilege of going to Russia with the Slavic Gospel Group, and they were holding a big conference for pastors, and this was the largest group of pastors who had ever met since the Iron Curtain fell, and probably before that as well, almost a 1,000 pastors. And it was amazing. And I'll never forget sitting with my little English group and looking over at the pew. We were on the front pew. There was a front pew on the side. And here was a man who reminded me uh, of the guy on um, the cough drops box, the Smith Brothers, you know. <laughs> older looking, long, white beard, very frail. Someone says, do you know who that is? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, he's a pastor who just got out of the gulag when the Iron Curtain fell, and he'd been in there for, and I can't remember the time, but it had been decades. So, wow. So I had to go over and walk and talk to him. He doesn't know English. I don't know Russian. I think I learned how to say hello. And we, I found a translator, and he said a few things to me, and I thought, this is just so wonderful. 800 pastors singing the praise of God in a language I don't understand, but it was glorious. But then I found out that there was dissension among those 800 pastors because of a particular issue of Christian practice. And it wasn't just the practice of this issue, it was whether you condemned it. And not just whether you condemned it, but whether you condemned it vehemently. And the 800 pastors were divided into several groups. Because with freedom, they were no longer battling the authorities. Now they had time to battle with one another. How sad is that? They will know we are Christians by our, yeah. Someone mockingly said they'll know we are Christians by our shove. Because if we're fighting, <laughs> they must be believers. Now there are some good things to fight for. But let's leave it to 
the biblical things. Let the love of the brethren continue. So verse 2 then jumps into another form of love. I think each one of these verses is talking about some type of brotherly love. And this one described in verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. Now this might be brethren who are strangers that they don't know. And because of persecution, were driven from their homes and now are walking the streets with no place to lodge and we're to show them love as well. Don't forget to entertain strangers. <laughs> the word entertain does not mean put on a puppet show. It means to show hospitality. And by so doing, some have even unwittingly entertained angels. It's very interesting that the word stranger um, has come into our language in a phobia, xenophobia. Xenos, the Greek for stranger. But this particular word is the word just like Philadelphia, only philozenia, love of strangers. So we are then to take in and show hospitality, not just to the brothers we know well, but to the brothers we don't know well. Now this could also include those who aren't believers, but this whole idea of hospitality is the church reaching out to the world. How well do we do with hospitality? Romans 12, 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's a list of what Christians should do. In Romans, the biblical apostolic pattern is followed in which doctrine is first given, and then you get to chapter 12, and the emphasis is on duty. It's much like Hebrews. The doctrine is given, and then there's a lot of emphasis on practical application of that doctrine in the 13th chapter. So Paul says, after all of the mercies of God, that would motivate us to give our lives to him as a living sacrifice. Make sure you distribute to the needs of the saints and you are given to hospitality. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 4, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. <laughs> so it's not just enough to be hospitable, but you have to do it with a good attitude. So your wife says that her family's coming over to stay for a few days. And you say, oh great, looking forward to it. And so you try to put on the hospitable face, but you're grumbling on the inside. There is something to this idea of hospitality which really reaches out into our world almost like nothing else will. It could also refer not just to Christians who were driven away because of persecution, but of traveling teachers. You can read about this in 3 John, the little epistle at the end of the Bible. 3 John, when it talks about being hospitable to those who are traveling for the faith. It's because that the, the inns 
and hotels of that day were nefarious for being expensive, immoral, and unhygienic. There was a dialogue between Dionysius and her Heracles, and the question was, can you tell me the hotel with the fewest fleas? <laughs> no one wanted to stop in at a hotel. In fact, many of them were on the same level as a brothel. And if you recall, that's exactly what Rahab had before she came to faith in Christ. So because the situation was so bad, believers needed to open up their homes for those who were traveling. And I think some of the greatest ministry today is when we open up our homes to strangers in Bible studies. Whether they be going deeper in the word or evangelistic, sharing the gospel or a combination of both. Many people are intimidated by coming into a church. You're not because you've done it all your life, some of you. Or you've gotten over the, hot, over the hump and somehow become comfortable. But many are not. Use the homes and show hospitality to the stranger and let them come in. And the gospel will go out in a powerful fashion. And notice this, end of verse 2. For by doing so, some have entertained angels unawares. Now this has to be a reference to the book of Genesis, when Abraham gave hospitality to several travelers and found out later, didn't know it then, one of them was the Lord himself. He entertained angels. Or also in the Old Testament book where Gideon, there on the threshing floor, is called to fight the Midianites as a leader of God's people and an angel is one he entertains with food. Or you think of the situation with the mother uh, of Samson and his father Manoah and their interaction with the angel. Again, entertaining angels at first not knowing it and then recognizing it. So, I think I'm bothered by two extremes with this verse. Those who think we're always entertaining angels. You know, a guy stops by, does a kind deed in his car, takes off. <laughs> who was that? It had to be an angel. Well, it could be the guy that just lives on the block who knows you. I'm bothered by people who are always seeing demons and angels. I'm also bothered by those who say it could never happen. Because how do you know it couldn't? It has, biblically. And there may be those unusual times where God steps in and provides deliverance. We don't know. But we do know this. The word angel means messenger. And I like what Warren Worsby says. He says, I am surprised. Uh, he says, you and I may not entertain angels in a literal sense, though it is possible. But any stranger can turn out to be a messenger of blessing. Here's another way for us to show love, and it goes just a little deeper than benevolence. This is empathy. Look at verse three. 
Remember the prisoners. Who are the prisoners? Probably believers. Probably people incarcerated for their faith. Many poor Christians could not pay their debts and were put in a debtor's prison. Remember them as if you were chained with them. Remember those who are being mistreated. So this is love for the mistreated. Sometimes people are put into prison because of their own deeds and hopefully there is some degree of remorse and you still need to reach out to those who have done wrong and paying the consequences for their foolish actions. But many have not done nothing wrong. They are oppressed and mistreated and we are to be empathetic, sympathetic love, feel what they are feeling. And that's what it says in verse three. Since you yourselves are in the body also, or literally, as you yourselves are in a body, you're human too, so connect with humans in their suffering. It's amazing to me when I study church history to see how famous the early church was for their care of the mistreated and the neglected. The love of the early church is not something that was content to be words only. In fact, it says in 1 John chapter three, love not just with words, but deeds and in truth. And that's what the early church did. There was a tremendous love for those who were hurting. Back at the beginning of the fourth century, the Roman emperor, Lysanias did not like believers. This was a very interesting time in the Roman Empire because uh, soon the whole empire would become Christian. But before it did, the emperors, many of them, were trying to hold on to the last vestiges of, of pagan control. And so this particular emperor, because Christians were notorious to coming into the jails and helping people put out new legislation that read like this. No one is to show kindness to sufferers in prison by supplying them with food, and no one is to show mercy to those starving in prison. Those discovered doing so will be compelled to suffer the same sentence and fate. Stop being so nice to the prisoners. And then he later actually co-authored the edict in Milan that gave tolerance to Christians because their love won him over and many others as well. It was the attitude of the Christian that God had called them to help the suffering. And they became extremely empathetic in our world today, because of all the problems that are going on, we have a tendency to move back, to isolate ourselves from people and not feel what the world is feeling. And I get that because there is so much information about how bad things are. But don't let that pull you away from this simple command to get involved with those who are hurting and alleviate their suffering. And perhaps by doing so, you might share with them the love of Christ. All you need is love. 
It's interesting, if you go back to chapter 10, you don't need to turn there now, but the same chapter that told us that some were in the habit of not gathering together had developed after a prior time in former days when they had a great struggle with their own suffering. 10.33, you were made a spectacle both by reproach and tribulations. You became companions with those who were mistreated and for you, you had compassion on those, even me, the writer says, when I was in my chains. But apparently that wasn't happening anymore. So let the brother, love of the brethren amp up and be hospitable to strangers and side with the mistreated. Devote your energies to helping the oppressed who are around you, because that honors God. But there's one final one, and I put this into the same category, although some people might make this a whole new study, and well, we could. But it's also about love, and this is verse four. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. So the bed is a euphemism for the sexual activity between a married couple. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Here again is where we totally misunderstand what God said. God created marriage. And he said it's good for a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two become one flesh. And in being one flesh, there is the propagation of the entire race as well as a gift to that married couple of physical love which can be enjoyed. But the world hears, <laughs> I can do whatever I want. In fact, there were two extremes in the early church. There was the asceticism, the feeling that the body is wicked because all material things are wicked and it's the spirit that is righteous and pure. So if the body is wicked, then sex must be bad as well, even in marriage. So some of the movement of the monastics declared that there is a higher spiritual path by abstaining from physical activity in marriage. You're greater in holiness and more like God. <laughs> and God says, you gotta be kidding. I made this and I said it's good. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The design is this heterosexual, perfect plan of God. One man, one woman, for life. And God said, this is good. And so, while the asceticists were saying it is dishonorable in the marriage union to be physically involved, God says marriageable is honorable among all classes in every situation. And the bed is not dishonorable nor defiled.
But you take that relationship outside of marriage and you have fornication, which is sexual immorality among those who aren't married, and adultery, which is sexual immorality among those who are. Now, actually, the Greek word behind fornication is the word pornos, where we get the English word pornography. And it now covers all the bases for all kinds of sexual immorality, including adultery. God's point is that the believers who love must love deeply, but they must love purely. And God's restrictions are not harsh. Because it says here, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. How does he judge sexual immorality? With sexually transmitted diseases? Doesn't mean that everyone that has one has been wicked. For sometimes a wicked partner comes home to a mate and infects them. But it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all the other sins are done outside the body, but this sin is going to affect your own body. There's the judgment of broken relationships. Just ask King David, whose sin was forgiven with Bathsheba, but his family suffered. There's the sin of being guilt-ridden. And you're not able to get rid of the guilt because you're guilty. And the shame, you can't get rid of the shame. Except by the blood of Christ. For Paul says, such were some of you, and he lists a whole group of uh, sexually immoral people. Such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. The blood of Christ has taken away your sin, and that's the only hope to get rid of all the shame. But there's also a judgment coming. And just because people don't get their due in this life does not mean God has forgotten. For it does say in verse four, God will judge the sexually immoral. And so you have a verse like Revelation 21, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those involved in the wicked uh, uh, cult, idolaters, and even all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. This is the second death. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is God's will for you to be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. There's that term. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of their brother or sister, for the Lord will punish all who commit such sins as we told you and forewarned you. God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. And he says in Ephesians chapter five, let no one deceive you, deceive you with empty words. It's because of sins like this, sexual immorality, 
that God's wrath will come on the disobedient. Sexual promiscuity, the pornos of our age, is found in all kinds of ways outside of the simple plan of God, one man and one woman in marriage for life. And so this is how we are to love one another. The brotherly love, verse one. The benevolent love, verse two. The empathetic, empathetic, sympathetic love of verse three. And the proper sexual, physical love in marriage of verse four. And if you feel greatly convicted because you aren't or you have committed a great transgression in the past, understand this. If we confess our sins, God is just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Because all you need is his love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, our Sovereign and our Lord, everyone in this world seems to do that which is right in their own eyes. And for the things that you have created that are good and wholesome, we have defiled and made them wicked and deplorable. some of the consequences we've experienced already. But Lord, we pray from judgment, deliver us as we repent of our sin and turn to the one who died on the cross to save us. For the greatest love of chapter 13 is not found in the early verses. But when it talks about Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever, who went outside the camp bearing our reproach and taking away our sin. For that is love. And that's the kind of love we need. In Jesus' name, amen.